Um, we have been working through Philippians 3 in the mindset of the Apostle Paul. If you remember, uh, the theme of the book is to think on these things. Uh, Paul uses all sorts of vocabulary that, that gets us to, uh, as readers, to focus on our own mindset or the way we think about life. And uh, by the time you get to chapter 3, you will notice that a good portion of this chapter is actually about Paul himself. I think I uh, suggested a while ago that over 70% of the book of Philippians is actually Paul talking about himself. He's got much to say about himself, and uh, this is not arrogant or conceited by Paul the Apostle because the Holy Spirit leads him to do so. The Spirit leads him to write a lot about himself, uh, primarily because Paul's mindset was not one in which he was perfect, but it was a mindset that was focused on Jesus Christ. If you've got a handout, you'll notice in the first paragraph there, I just described what we covered a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we began to look at Paul's own Christ-centered mindset. In Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11, we saw what I called his driving obsession to know Christ more as a seasoned Christian and a missionary church planter. If you remember looking in your Bibles at verse 7, I believe that verse 7 is describing Paul's attitude when he got saved on the road to Damascus. When, uh, as verse 7 there says, whatever gain he had, the things he used to boast in, he counted all of those means of self-righteousness as loss for the sake of Christ. That describes his conversion on the road to Tarshish, or on the road to Damascus. But then as you turn to verse 8, remember I said there's a major transition at the beginning of verse 8. The ESV just gives one word for this, but there are actually five conjunctions that Paul gives between verses 7 and 8. And in verse 8, he's not skipping in time. He's not waiting 23 years to write verse 8. He's simply now reflecting as a seasoned missionary church planter what his present attitude about Jesus was while he was sitting in in his own house in prison in Rome. And now Paul's attitude has only grown more emphatic. His evaluation of Christ is even stronger in verse 8 when he says that everything is now done or refuse compared to the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus. I call that Paul's driving obsession it starts in verse 8, it goes through verse 11, where he just continues to say, now everything is lost, everything is done, I just want to know him more and more every day. That's the driving obsession of Paul's mindset. But then, um, two weeks ago on a Sunday night, I continued into verses 12 through 16, and we saw what I called the unrelenting determination of Paul's mindset as well. Although Paul was not perfect, and although Paul did not have a full grasp on Christ, he presses on. That is, Paul received an upward call from God at his conversion when he was accepted by the Lord, and that upward heavenly calling was to get to know Christ more and more. And so regardless of Paul's own limitations— Regardless of his own failures, he presses on. You see, Paul's more concerned to get to know Christ than he is even with his 
past successes and failures. He's forgetting the past, and he's reaching forward to the goal of gaining more of Jesus Christ. This leads us to verses 17 through uh, 21, and then into chapter 4 and verse 1 here today, where Paul gives some direct admonitions for the Philippian believers to imitate his own mindset or approach to life. Uh, If you're following in your notes, there's a blank there. Uh, Number one, an initial admonition to follow good examples. Let's go ahead and look in our Bibles at Philippians 3, verse 17. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You look at verse 17, you see Paul's initial commands. There are actually two of them in, two of them in this verse. He says that they are to be joint imitators of him, and that they are to keep their eyes on other good examples. I think with these two commands in verse 17, Paul's just laying out a strategy for the Philippians that's very important to them. You need to follow my example and the example of other people uh, who are faithful. I personally believe that what Paul, the examples that Paul is thinking of are found in chapter 2 right before this. Now, in, in preaching, we covered these examples a few weeks ago because we've been kind of talking about them in their context, thinking about them and how they relate to the book. But if you were part of the original readers, you would have just heard these names a few minutes ago. They should follow after good examples like Jesus Christ himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through uh, 11. Jesus kept condescending, kept stepping down, but then God exalts him. They're to also follow the example of people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Remember chapter 2? You can look in your Bibles at verses 19 through 30 and be reminded of the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Then Paul transitions in chapter 3, verses 4 through 15 to talk about his own example. He says the Philippians are to follow after and look to examples like these ones. Christ, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul himself. I want to make a few uh, important observations about verse 17. First, I think that the call to imitate here is a call for unity or unified imitation of the apostle. If you look in your Bibles at that first imperative, the ESV has translated it, join in imitating me. Join together in being imitators of Paul. This means all of them together should corporately 
Follow Paul's example. The word for join here is a new word that I think Paul the Apostle coined. I think it's one that he didn't have in his vocabulary, perhaps before this time, uh, because we don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. I wasn't able to find it anywhere else in any Greek literature. This is a new word for Paul, and it, it, it just means joined together, or jointly together. He does not say that they must be imitators of, but they must be joint imitators of. In other words, they need to do this together as a congregation, jointly. They should follow after the example of the Apostle Paul. So this is a call for unity, which is a theme that Paul has mentioned throughout here. But another important observation is... um, When we think about these imperatives in our own setting, I think sometimes these imperatives are not received very well in our culture today. Uh, Sadly, even believers sometimes struggle with what Paul says and does here. I mean, Paul basically says, you all need to follow me, imitate me. I came, actually came across two different types of believers today who are rejecting this command and stating things like, this is a grab for power from the Apostle Paul. Sadly, some believers feel that Paul is just trying to protect his apostolic authority here. But I want to question that. What I want to say is, Uh, I think that uh, even as believers, we need to be careful that we are not blinded by our own secular, worldly philosophy of education in our country today that is driven by skepticism and suspicion of authorities. There's a general kind of life philosophy of suspicion that looms over our part of the world today. So that any time an authority calls for people to follow him, we reject it as a play for power. He just wants like a bigger group or something. He just wants us to be cronies who will follow after him. This secular skepticism infects more than our culture, though, I think it affects believers. I mean, think about it. If a religious leader a hundred years ago would have called for believers in the church to follow him, what do you think those believers would have done a hundred years ago? I think they probably would have gotten in line, right? And followed him. But what happens anytime a leader today says that believers should follow him or her today. Well, some believers would probably follow, but others would resist, right? Why? Well, because we're more enlightened than to know that we would have to follow after any one person. Well, sometimes I think it is for good reasons that we question following a person, right? I mean, if there's something about the ego of the person or the agenda of the person, the authority, 
is wrong or off, we rightly critique it and we don't follow if it doesn't match with the Scriptures. But other times, we resist following someone who calls us to follow because this is how we're wired. As a culture, we are generally skeptical of those in authority and we teach our children to function this way as well. But for Paul, this is not a grab for power. I mean, he is led by the Spirit of God here, folks. And Paul is transparent even about the sort of leadership that he's going to provide. I mean, he's not a perfect leader. I mean, he just made two concessions in the passage before this. I am not perfect, and I don't have a full grasp of Jesus Christ. So Paul is a transparent leader. He's led by the Spirit of God to write this, and he also calls attention to other positive examples of the sort of people the Philippians should follow. So it's not just like, okay, everyone follow me. Now, here, here are lined up a bunch of good examples, and what you need to do, Philippian congregation, is you need to join together in imitating my mindset and the mindset of these people. Instead of casting off religious authorities and rejecting their call to imitation as a ploy for power or prestige, we should see that sometimes following their example is the very best thing that we can do. Perhaps you are a younger believer or a believer who hasn't been saved for some time and you're struggling with some besetting sin. I want to suggest that one of the very best things that you can do for your own spiritual health and growth is to find a godly, elderly believer in this church and meet with them. Get to know them. Ask them questions. Seek their input. Basically, bug them until you're like them. They will not be perfect. But if they're the sort of example you should be following, they will be pressing on to get to know more about Jesus Christ day by day. But in case you're still not convinced, Paul gives two reasons why the Philippians must follow his example. You say, you know, well, Pastor Brent, you almost had me about that whole, like, you know, imitating or following people. Well, I almost had you. That was my effort. Now let's let Paul try it. He's got two reasons why you should follow good examples like Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. These are found in verses 18 and 19. That's the first reason. And then a little bit later on, we'll talk about verses 20 and 21 and that reason there. The first reason we should follow after good examples or join together in following good examples is because of the danger of following bad ones. Look with me at verse 18. For many of whom I've told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Notice here in these two verses, Paul gives five descriptions of the bad examples that he does not want the Philippians to, uh, to follow. These uh, people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame, and they, their mindset is turned to earthly things. 
But in your notes, I ask a more specific question, who are these people? I mean, can we put a face on them? Can we understand more of who these uh, opponents of Paul here are? And I want to suggest that there are generally two suggestions that have been offered by theologians and students of the Scriptures throughout the history of the interpretation of this passage. So you've got two bullet points. See them there in your notes? Bullet point number one, many have suggested that Paul's describing professing believers who indulged in moral license. Moral license. So they, they were believers, perhaps, or they, they professed Jesus, but then they did whatever they wanted to do. They were all about license. They were grace abusers. So Paul says, their end is destruction. Okay, the end of these people, if that's what he's talking about, is ruin or destruction. It might be something like hell. Their God is their belly. That means they make a God after or uh, over, or I, I should say, a God of their own bodily appetites. So what is a God to them? It's what they, own, what, what they desire and crave for. That's their God. Make a God of their belly, or their bodily appetites. They indulge in whatever bodily appetite or moral craving they want in the name of grace. And they take pride or they boast in their freedom to indulge in immoral practices which will result in their final shame. Keep going through the descriptions here. This type of people certainly focus on earthly things. They're obsessed with the here and now. Okay? So this could be that these people are grace abusers. Okay? But my normal strategy is to lead with the one I don't really like as much, right? I just didn't waste your time, but you just know many, many people, probably people in this assembly believe that this is talking about people who just abuse grace as New Testament believers or professing believers. If that is the case, I think Paul's attitude about them is their end is ruin. Okay. However, the other way you could take this, and the, the other bullet point here, would be that many others suggest that Paul has Jewish false teachers in mind. Jewish false teachers of mine. So we're trying to put a face on these people. I mean, we got kind of the image of them, but can we pinpoint who Paul's talking about here? They say that he's, he described these Jewish false teachers earlier in chapter 3. Look in your Bibles at verse 2. Verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, so he just described a group of Jewish false teachers who were rejecting Jesus Christ. You keep reading in verse 3, they were not boasting in Jesus, they were boasting in flesh, their own flesh, and they were teaching other Jews to do the same, to boast in things like circumcision. Paul calls them dogs, evil workers and mutilators in verse 2. The problem with this second idea, however, is saying that these are the Jewish false teachers, I think rests almost entirely in Paul's response in verse 18. So look back in your Bible. I know it's been kind of technical, but this is going to be very rewarding in a second. Look at verse 18. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. 
The problem I have with this maybe being the Jewish false teachers of chapter 3 and verse 2 is that Paul's attitude is entirely different toward this group of people. I mean, in verse 2, he, he, uh, re, he calls them names. They're skunks or dogs. It's like they're rats. They're mutilators. They're evil workers. Here he says, when I'm describing these people and writing this letter, I'm crying over, I'm weeping over their condition. And so, um, Paul's tenderness here is different than his stark opposition and name-calling in chapter 3 and verse 2. In my, in my opinion here, whatever that's worth, one important adjustment needs to be made to this second bullet point, the second view. And the adjustment that I would make, it, for whatever reason I've not seen in the commentaries, which should make you nervous and made myself nervous, I've actually suggested it to a few of them and been interacting with them this week about its strength, trying to win them over. But the best explanation, in my opinion, is that Paul is still dealing with Jewish opposition. I mean, that's the context, right? Jewish opposition. But that he is no longer dealing with the teachers of wrong Jewish theology, but those who lived or practiced wrong Jewish values. In our context of verses 18 and 19, there's nothing about teaching anymore. There's nothing about doctrine necessarily, but what there is a description of is the way these people walk. They are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, he is not condemning Jewish false teachers here, but he is lamenting the victims of false teaching. The victims of Jewish false teaching. There are many Jewish people who rejected Jesus Christ and their practice, their walk, damns them. So the victims of Jewish false teaching end, they end in destruction. In either something like ruin or hell. Their God is their belly. That which consumes these Jewish false practices are... Um, Concerns regarding food, clean and unclean. They make gods out of their food laws. They were Jews preoccupied with observance of food laws. And the text says they glory in their shame, meaning they're boasting in things that should be shameful or private. It's very interesting to me that the word for shame here is also used in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 23. You could write that down somewhere and look it up this week. In 1 Corinthians 12, 23, Paul uses it of people boasting in private or shameful parts of the body. In other words, Paul, uh, this is a way for Paul to confront people who were boasting in their circumcision. Jewish people who were taking confidence in the ceremonial rite of circumcision. They're glorying in their shame. So that I agree with a commentator here. If you flip to the second page of your notes, I do agree with Hawthorne and Martin in their word biblical commentary on the book of Philippians. When they make this statement, there's a black bolded section in your notes that says, uh, these people have become so preoccupied with scrupulous observance of ritual detail 
so obsessed with the supreme importance of circumcision that they had no thought for anything or anyone higher. God has become obscured by religion. These are Jewish people who should know better. They claim to be followers of God, but they are obsessed with circumcisions. They're obsessed with food laws, so much so that the text says their mind is set on earthly things. Earthly things. Things here. Things here on this level. It does not say that these people occasionally think about things, earthly things, but their minds are, uh, are set on them. They are obsessed with Jewish rituals and observances so much so that they miss out on the Son of God. And these religious but damned people are enemies. Enemy number one of the cross of Jesus Christ. They've been duped by false teachers, so Paul weeps over them as he weeps over the fate of his Jewish brethren in places like Romans 9. Would you turn to Romans 9 for just a second? Romans 9, I just want to read a few verses to you. Here in a similar passage, I think Paul is considering the fate of many Jewish people outside of Jesus Christ. In Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul's got all sorts of different things he's doing in that text. One of the things he's doing is he's explaining why so many Jewish people have rejected the gospel that he preaches. And right at the beginning of this major, awesome passage, Paul briefly considers the fate of Israelite people outside of Christ. Look with me at Romans 9 and verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Imagine Paul almost weeping at this point in the letter to the Romans. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Who are his brothers? My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. You can keep reading some other time. Paul is greatly burdened for the fact that many, many Jewish people are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, when he talks about these people who are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, who are boasting in the wrong things, who are glorying in the wrong things, and who have minds set on earthly things, I think he's describing Jewish people like he does here in Romans chapter 9. In a moment of application for us, can I emphasize a few points from this text? You could go back to Philippians for a moment. A few applications for us. I think a a general point that Paul is making here is that sometimes observing believers, I'll put quotation marks around that, professing believers with the wrong practice can be just about as damning as hearing believers, quotation marks, teach or preach the wrong theology. Sometimes observing believers with the wrong practice can be just about as damning as hearing believers teach or preach the wrong theology. And let me make uh, a a, a self-critique 
of our form of church and then a critique larger than ours. Just because someone is a Baptist does not necessarily mean that their practice is right or that their obsession with practice doesn't blind them from boasting in Jesus. I have met far too many Baptists who are not Christ-centered in their mindset and who boast in entirely all the wrong things. They're not gospel-driven. They're boasting in tradition or practice. And so we need to be careful. We need to learn from this bad example so that we're not boasting in the wrong sort of things, earthly things. But we're boasting in Jesus Christ alone. I think perhaps another application here is uh, just a, a word of warning. When, when we come together in larger gatherings for worship, I think we need to be very careful of naively soaking in the practices of other believers, professing believers who have false theology. Occasionally in in, in, uh, my travels, I'll have to spend time with larger groups of Christians, Christians, and spend time interacting with them and and seeing them. And um, I, I just want to caution us. I think we need to be careful about naively soaking in practices of people who their practices are based on wrong theology. So they seem like good people. They are so genuine in appearance. Yeah, okay, but do they have Christ right? If they don't have Jesus Christ and Him alone, no works, right? It doesn't matter how genuinely Genuine, they appear. Boast in Jesus alone. Do they have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit correct? Is that an important one? Yes. He's a member of the Godhead as well. What we might like about the sincerity or the driving ambitions of some other believers more broadly sometimes might be based upon practice that follows wrong theology. And so, just be careful. So we should follow Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and other good examples because following bad examples can be dangerous. In some cases, like this one, even damning. Then in verse 20, and and we'll pick up the pace here a little bit, In, in verse 20, he gives a second reason why you should follow good examples. Follow good examples because you are citizens of heaven. Look what's going on with me in verses 20 and 21. You notice that Paul is playing off what he just said about the bad examples? The bad examples, their mind is set on what? Earthly things. Okay. But we, the Philippians and Paul, we are citizens of heaven. Okay. Earthly heaven. But instead of giving a simple contrast here, I think he's doing something a little bit different. And and I think, unfortunately, my ESV Bible actually veils it a bit. Okay, and I like the ESV, but I'm not ESV only or anything like that. Okay, 
Matter of fact, in my Bible, what I've done at the beginning of verse 20 is I've drawn a little wee line through the word but, and I put the word for. Like many other translations, this is just something I created. The, the King James, for instance, says for in verse 20. The New American Standard says the word for. And if you do that, if you draw a line through but, you put the word for, I would also encourage you to circle it. Okay? And the reason I encourage you to circle it is look with me at verse 18. What's the first word of verse 18? For. What is the new first word for verse 20? For. See, what Paul is doing is in parallel, he's giving you two reasons why you must follow his example. Reason number one is uh, you need to follow good examples because all the bad examples out there, like these enemies of the cross. Reason number two, why you need to follow his example is because you are heavenly citizens. And Paul and the others, they have an upward call of God. They have it right. They have a heavenly calling that they're pursuing after, and that is to get to know Jesus Christ more. So look with me at verse 20. Verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Philippians are members or citizens of a heavenly colony located in the city of Philippi. When Paul uses this language of citizenship or colony or commonwealth here, I think he's using a word they would be very familiar with. As citizens of Philippi, they were actually citizens of Rome living in the city of Philippi. Okay, and so Paul, I think, uses that analogy with the Philippians. Okay. You know, as citizens of Rome living in the city of Philippi, they were to conduct themselves in a way that was worthy of being a Roman citizen. They were to act in that way. And so Paul tells the believers in Philippi, you actually are not just uh, Roman citizenships in Philippi. You are heavenly citizens living in Philippi. So act in a way which is worthy of of your heavenly calling and citizenship for Jesus Christ. That leads us to chapter 4 and verse 1, a closing admonition. One last admonition, and that is a closing admonition to stand firm. Look with me at 4 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I Love and long for my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. At this point, Paul has challenged them to be joint imitators of Paul and other good examples. He's given them two reasons to do so. Chapter 4 and verse 1, he wraps it all up with one last command. And uh, there is unfortunately a chapter division here. We know chapter divisions in verse Numbers aren't inspired. Those were added much after the original manuscripts were produced. That's just so that we don't get lost. So I don't have to say, you know, turn in your your Bibles to the book of Philippians and then go into like the seventh column halfway down, you know, so we can find it. 
Chapter 4 and verse 1, I think, is actually the conclusion to what he's been saying in chapter 3. And so, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 1, notice that he gives, he shows his deep affection for them. He gives six, calls them by six designations. My brothers, those who I love, those who I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. I think this creates the effect of both catching their attention and emphasizing the flood of warm feelings he has toward them. And in the middle of all of those warm titles of endearment that he gives, he gives a command. And this command should stick out to you at the middle to end of verse 1. The command. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. They're to stand firm in relation to one thing in particular. The same thing he started this whole section off with. Go back to Philippians chapter 3. Look with me in verse 3. For we, genuine believers, are the circumcision. We're the true circumcision. We worship, how? By the Spirit of God. And we boast in or glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in flesh. See, there are two things that you could boast in. They both start with the word in in your translation. In Christ Jesus or in flesh. The false teachers boast in flesh, but if you're a genuine child of God, you don't boast in your own accomplishments. You boast in Christ Jesus. So Paul, at the very end of the section, wraps it up with the same challenge. Uh, Only he tells us to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in Christ. We must stand firm in the Lord. We we cannot budge one inch in our resolved commitment to Christ. Can't step back from our firm allegiance to Jesus. But we must stand firm. Firmly in Him. For some reason, when I read this last challenge, I always think of stubbornness. And when I think of stubbornness, for some reason, I often think of children. This is not uh, necessarily uh, a critique of my own children or maybe my own childhood. But children can be stubborn, can't they? I do remember one of my own kids who remained nameless several years ago. This uh, child got a seat in one of our vehicles, the Suburban, the prize seat in the Suburban. The one, you know, you got to leave the room or you got to run across the parking lot yelling that it's your seat and then you get in it sort of seat. And so he got the prize seat in the suburban. And uh, that's when, you know, as a dad, I, and we were in a public place, okay, so we're in a public place, I've got to go and negotiate with my child that he does not, I'm oh, sorry, that the child, <laughs> well, that the child does not get to receive the prime seat. And so a small child of mine, 
negotiating with him in this public place. And uh, I said, listen, it's not your turn for the seat. And that's when, I mean, I saw something out of him I'd never seen to that point in his life. That was rigid determination that nothing or no one would move him from that seat. And so we engaged in some newthetic counseling. <laughs> Men and women, there should be one person, one thing that you should never negotiate. You must never budge one inch away from. And that is that you would stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not flesh. Not flesh in Jesus. I trust that as we go throughout the week, we will be rigidly committed to standing firm in the Lord regardless of our physical location. In a secular workplace where it's not popular, to stand firm or boast in Jesus, I'm staying here. I'm standing firm in the Lord. Or if by God's sovereign plan we endure great levels, some levels of persecution for our testimony to Jesus Christ that we would say collectively together, I'm staying here. I'm standing firm in one thing, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture. I thank you for what you have taught us. Thank you for the challenges of the Apostle Paul. I do thank you for his mindset that was Christ-centered. And I'm grateful that he ends a focus on his own mindset by telling the Philippians to get in line and follow him. Lord, may we not be skeptical of the words of the Apostle Paul here, but may we embrace them and see that by your good and sovereign hand, you led an Apostle to not only make mistakes and to struggle and to have his own imperfection, but you led an Apostle to count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. You led an apostle to forget all those things which were behind and to reach forward for those things which were before, to reach forward to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, may we as Christian men and women also have a mindset like Paul's that boasts in Jesus. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.